All right, I'm going to go live real quick. This one hopefully will be a shorter one than it was the, the couple of days ago when I was introducing my live program. But I'm going to spend a few minutes actually talking. You'll notice the topic of this one is talking about the Supreme Court, and it's talking about the events that are going on today and the importance of all that. And the, the question I'm asking is, is the Supreme Court an unchained power? And, uh, and I believe that you're going to unfortunately agree with my uh, take on this. Uh, and if you do any kind of research on it, you're going to find that it is extremely uh, troublesome, to say the least, uh, the, the results of, uh, of doing any kind of study on the powers that are going completely unchecked within the Supreme Court. And I chose today to cover this topic the way that I'm covering it because it is September 1st of 2021. And those of you that are in Texas are very much... Uh, most of you should be, and if you're paying attention to any kind of Texas news at all, you're aware of what effectively took place today thanks to the, um, <laughs> and I, I hate to even say thanks to it, but uh, it took place today because the Supreme Court didn't step in. And what I'm referring to is the new uh, abortion bill. It's really an anti-abortion bill. A pro-life bill in its own way, and a, a version of that, in that uh, the requirements now for abortions mean that they have to be conducted within the first six weeks of the pregnancy. If the if the child is beyond six weeks, it is now no longer legal in Texas for you to perform an abortion or to get an abortion. And uh, of course, you know the the, uh, the Planned Parenthood types. The, uh, the pro-abortionists were out there screaming and shouting. They were trying to get this submitted into the Supreme Court to have the Supreme Court overrule um, this finding before today because today was when it was supposed to take place, and the Supreme Court decided not to hear the case. And as a result of that, it went fully into effect today without any kind of challenge. And, and we'll see if it upholds. I'm sure there will be groups that will continue to try and fight this just like they have ever since 1973 when the original Roe v. Wade uh, the decision came down in the Supreme Court. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about that particular event and a few others as the uh, huge tent post in the history of the Supreme Court. And it was during that time in the early 70s when the Supreme Court came into its full understanding of just exactly how untethered their power was and is today and how it has just uh, accumulated into a much more massive machine today and how dangerous the Supreme Court actually has become. And you know what's what's wild is that initially if I talk about the Supreme Court, people go, well, I mean, if it's, you know, it's incredibly important. I mean, we've got to have it. I mean, it, it, it's our last stand against things that, you know, get put into the court system and we don't like them when we send them to the Supreme Court and people wring their hands over, you know, who's being appointed and who gets to appoint them and and what their decisions are and all those type of things. And I know the conservatives were had all kinds of major issues with, uh, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and they were ready to see her leave and all these different things going on. And the liberals were huge in, in trying to fight to get somebody to replace her, to get her out of there and get somebody, I mean, to get uh, keep her in there or to get a Democrat president in office to replace her. And you remember that whole argument during the Trump administration. Their argument was that uh, we don't want Trump to be able to appoint anybody uh, to fill her spot. That needs to be reserved to the next president, whoever the next president is. 
And the truth is, if he had, if he had, however you want to look at it, but if he had been reelected into the system and he was serving his second term right now, the the liberal agenda there in D.C. would still be arguing and fighting and shouting that he doesn't need to be making the, those decisions. They would still find a reason, even at the beginning of a second term. And we know that would be the case. It's always been that way. And you can go back and you look at all kinds of documentation from both sides of the aisle over the years, and they all want to argue the reasons why the sitting president can't elect, uh, fill the gaps within the Supreme Court. And then you've got arguments, and you've had arguments from both sides over the need for more than nine people in the Supreme Court and so forth. And, uh, or the argument for them to not have nine, depending on what it is they're wanting to do. Well, let me give you a little background. And I apologize right now because I'm going to be reading some of this actually from an excellent uh, text. It's actually a classroom text uh, that I uh, highly, highly recommend. It's, it's by uh, Wayne Grudem, and it is called Politics According to the Bible. And it is actually a textbook that is used within a uh, a Christian college environment talking about politics, and so I will be, I'll be reading sections from that, uh, portions from that, just kind of because honestly, uh, Wayne Grudem brings it all together in a very good fashion, and I'm not going to try to pretend that I'm just this all-knowing something. I'm going to give you a reference that you yourself can go back and take a look at. Now, one of the arguments that he makes is talking about the court system and the question of the ultimate power that's given in the nation. And, you know, we we understand, I mean, you go through your history classes and you know that uh, we've always been taught that there are, you know, three chambers of power in our U.S. government and that there is a checks and balances that takes place and that you've got uh, executive, legislative, and judicial. And so you've got, you've got a body that is kind of considered the, the, the figurehead position, the, the presidential area, the White House, right? Then you've got the area that deals with the creating of the laws and bills, and then you've got an area that's supposed to be interpreting uh, the constitutionality of the events that people perform on a daily basis under those laws and, and rules. And that's how it's supposed to work, and each chamber is supposed to be able to balance the others out so that no one chamber, no one section of the government can run it all. That's the way it was designed. But like everything that is man-made, there are loopholes in them. There are chinks in the armor that can defeat that process. And we have one of those built into the Supreme Court. And even though it falls under the court portion of the three chambers, it, it actually sits above the United States judicial system. And, and, and here's how it does that. And it, it, it's not that it always has. It's not like the Constitution was written indicating this is where this chamber is more powerful than the others. It's that they have begun to interpret things in a certain way. And what it is, there's a wording that's allowed in the Supreme Court decisions known as a discovery. And what that means is that they are allowed to discover an interpretation of a particular portion of the Constitution. So they can take a particular act, um, they can take a, a, a particular amendment, things of that nature, and they can go, well, we have discovered a new interpretation of that particular phrase or, or statute. 
landscape. And by throwing that terminology in there, these up to nine people who, I need to remind you, none of these people are elected by you and me. These people are not put into their positions by us. We do not go into an electoral booth and vote for these people. These people are appointed by the people that we elect. At least that's, you know, in in a nutshell, that's the version of it. We know there's more to it really than that. But the generality is we elect people. They then uh, offer up figures to serve as Supreme Court justices, and that body votes those members into this elite group called the Supreme Court. And that, that's how, in theory, it works. Now, in reality, we know there's a whole lot more politics that goes into it. There's a lot more behind the scenes. And the truth is, you and I, we have no control over who ends, ends up in those, those seats. None. Absolutely none. And yet there's this loophole in that particular portion where they are not elected by the U.S. citizens, but they can override every law, every law that is created by those we did elect. And it, if you have good people, have moral people in those positions up there, it's not a problem. It's when you get people that are easier to bend or had a weak moral constitution in the first place that end up in these positions. And they're there for life. They are there until they either die or they resign from the position. So it is an extremely powerful, an extremely elite position. So back in, and let me give you some examples of where this discovery format has made it extremely dangerous. Back in 1973, Jan, uh, January 22nd of 1973, it's the extremely, extremely famous, partly because of the events that took place today that went into effect in Texas. People are being reminded of January 22nd, 1973, the decision that the Supreme Court made on a little battle that was going on called Roe v. Wade. And we now know that Roe Roe has recanted, wasn't a real person, first of all, it's just a fake name, but, but recanted her statement. She was coerced to do what she did in this thing. So the, 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 uh, the court case itself should never have even been, even been heard, but it was. And uh, on January 22, 1973, the Supreme Court announced their decision regarding... Um, abortion. Okay, and what their decision was, it was it was it overturned the laws that restricted or prohibited abortion in all 50 states. Okay? So the decision gave women an unrestricted right to abortion up to the point of viability, which was considered uh what is it uh, 28 weeks. Okay, which means viability indicating up to the point in which the child could probably survive on some kind of a life support outside of the womb. <coughs> so, this overturned any restrictions on that up until that point. Now, what it also did, though, is it allowed for abortion to protect the not just the physical health of the mother carrying the child, but the mental health. And therefore, it actually allowed 
for abortion all the way up into 40 weeks because it wasn't about the health of the baby at that point. It was about the health of the mother. And, and it wasn't about the health of the mother in physical as much as it allowed for the health of her in a mental state. So if she makes it 28 weeks and the child could make it on its own, but she continues to carry the child and she's feeling all kinds of mental health issues, stress or whatever, because of the, that she's pregnant or that she's about to have the child and she's anxious about it or whatever, whatever her reasons are, or the family situation, the support situation disappears on her and she becomes frantic. Um, and I, I know I'm using very, um, masculine type terms and I know I'm going to offend some people and I really don't care but uh, but the, the thought of it becoming an irrational overwhelming anxious time for her at the end of this pregnancy they could still perform an abortion because it would be for the mother's mental health not for the baby's physical health that uh, they would allow for the abortion to take place so the mother would still be capable of having abortion basically to the very end and uh, and that's that's where Roe v. Wade came in, and it, it what it did is again it it handcuffed the individual fifty states in those decisions. Now over the years there have been variations of that type of thing, and there have been certain states that have done certain things, and I understand that. But here's the point that happens in this: How in the world did the Supreme Court hear this case and get to the point where they came to that decision? That's the part nobody wants to spend time focusing on. They just assume that, well, they looked at the Constitution, and the Constitution said that she had a right, and therefore there it is. No. The 7-2 to decision was based on, this is, this is crazy, it was based on a rather interesting new discovered interpretation of the 14th Amendment. <laughs> okay? This was, and I've, I've got to read this portion because it's it's just too specific, okay? The decision was a 7-2 majority, but how could the justices claim that the Constitution guaranteed a woman a right to abortion when the Constitution said nothing at all about abortion? And how could they discover this new meaning, specifically in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, when laws restricting or prohibiting abortion had already been in existence in 36 states and territories at the very time that the 14th Amendment was adopted. Well, the justices claimed that they found this right to abortion was contained in a right to privacy that they saw in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, particularly in the due process provision of that amendment. Okay, Now, that due process clause says this, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. That's the due process line. Okay? The claim is the members of that particular Supreme Court back in 1973 believed that in the 14th Amendment you could read the due process line that I just read as some form of right to privacy and that that right to privacy could include abortion. Now, where is the right to privacy in the actual words of this clause? They're not there. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It doesn't say anywhere in there of a right to privacy. Nowhere. Now, the 14th Amendment had been ratified in 1868 
and its primary purpose was to guarantee that slaves and their descendants would have all the rights of citizenship and equal protection to all other citizens under the law. So let's step back for a second and look at this. So in 1973, the Supreme Court, 7-2, decided that the 14th Amendment, which was written to give total equal protection and citizenship to former slaves, somehow allowed for abortion. Yeah, I'm going to let that soak in for a second. 14th Amendment... <laughs> was dealing with equal rights of people who had been slaves before. Now, if you want to extend into any further of this, you really people talk about how Planned Parenthood aims at the minority community, and it does. Statistically, you find more of their offices, more of their clinics, more of their paraphernalia in general, their promoting gets done in minority neighborhoods. And we know the history of Margaret Sanger and we know that she, uh, she was a huge advocate for trying to cleanse out the world from the population of the minorities. She was extremely racist, particularly toward the black community. She creates Planned Parenthood. They put them into the minority neighborhoods, and so they intentionally were promoting and given the opportunity for black babies to be aborted on a higher percentage than other ethnicities, not just white. She specifically was gearing more toward the black community. And 14th Amendment is about giving all people equal rights, right? It was considered a predominantly black bill. I mean, a black amendment. It was, it was seen as a victory for the black community because it was giving them equal rights. And yet the Supreme Court in 1973 uses this predominantly black equalizing amendment and turns around and says, we're now going to legalize the right to kill black babies. And, and, and am I reading into that? A little bit. But only a little bit. Because again, abortion is primarily targeted toward minority groups. The 14th Amendment was intended to equalize the status of minorities. And the Supreme Court comes in and makes these nine people make this decision, nine unelected people, make this decision that we're going to use this black amendment to legalize killing of blacks for the next generation going forward. And no, I don't think I'm being too bold in saying it that way. That's really what was happening here. Predominantly, that's what was happening here. Okay, It has been a black baby murdering factory, abortion. I mean, it affects all races, but it has been streamlined toward black communities. Okay? And it, it's a huge slap in the face to take a freedom amendment and turn it into a killing amendment. And yet, there are still people in the black community that still support the democratic process and the limit, and they still, they're huge on this thing, and they just don't get it. 
And there are people of all races that don't get it, but I'm just saying that particularly the black community, please wake up and pay attention to what you're, you're just look at the history. Look at how the connecting points are. Connect the dots for yourself. They're there. I mean, they're obvious. Put, put yourself into a little bit of an adult amount the government's here to help you. Please allow yourself some skepticism in all that. You were skeptic about the Trump administration and you're skeptic about what Republicans do. Be skeptical about what the Democrats are doing as well and what the Supreme Court is doing. Again, these nine people who were not elected by you and I turned this whole thing around and created this event and they overrode the 50 states that overwhelmingly were in opposition to this form of abortion. And these nine people, well, seven of them, said, no, uh, you don't have a right to have a say in this. We're going to say what can and can't be done. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's crazy is what it is. But the fact that they had this strange interpretation of the 14th Amendment in this passage of due process where they claim not only is it in the due process line, but that the due process line actually somehow contains a right to privacy, which it doesn't. It doesn't even say it. doesn't even imply it. And then we're going to take that and, make, and, and claim that that somehow fits into this abortion stuff. And by passing it, they really only had to pass it with five people, but by passing it with the seven, it now became this, this law that there is no court higher to go to to have it overturned. It was, it was never going to pass on a level lower than that. It had not. But these seven of these nine people that were not elected by us made this decision in 1973, and we've been dealing with it ever since. And that's just one example of some of the horrors of the overreach because the Supreme Court claims that it can discover new interpretations of the content. And that's a big one. Okay, let me rephrase it again. They literally took an amendment about equality of, of people as citizens, took a line in that about due process, reinterpret that, discover an interpretation that it, that means right to privacy, and then further take that right to privacy statement, which again isn't there, and turn it into a right for abortion for mental illness or mental health or whatever reasons. Now, I don't say all this purely because I am opposed to abortion. <laughs> it's not that. Okay, what I'm opposed to is if you look at it on paper, they were literally just making up stuff. They weren't taking a statement from the Constitution. They weren't taking a statement from an amendment that was talking about people's uh, freedoms to have medical procedures or for health reasons. It wasn't even talking about any of that. It was talking about equal rights in general and due process, meaning you have a right to go through the legal system appropriately. All people do. That's what it was talking about. And we're going to throw that in there and say it's a right to privacy? This wasn't even talking, we're not talking First or Second Amendment, we're talking a 14th Amendment, which wasn't talking about those type of things. They, I mean, just, it's a wild, huge 
leap of a reach. They could have picked any amendment and claimed that it was there because they weren't basing it off of the actual text that was there. Even an implied portion of the text, they just decided to rediscover a new interpretation of it for that purposes. And because they made that decision and they came to the conclusion there's not a court in the United States that can override that decision. You can temporarily do certain things, but then the argument still goes back to, well, but the Supreme Court decision was blah, blah, blah. Now, for my conservative friends out there, I, w I think it's important that you understand that you know, there's been a lot of screaming and shouting over the nearly 50 years. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary here in 23. For nearly 50 years, there's been arguments from the conservatives that the Democrats passed this thing. No, seven non-elected judges passed this thing. Okay? It wasn't the Democrat Party. It wasn't a particular party that did this, and it wasn't a group of people that voted it. It was seven individuals who were not elected by the American people, therefore they don't represent the American people, who came to this decision. Seven people. And I, it's important that I throw this in there because this is one of the other things that's been in the news within the last couple of weeks. People have been posting on social media like crazy. I mean... This marks the anniversary of, or whatever, of the appointment of the first black Supreme Court Justice, Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was one of those seven. So while people are posting images of him on social media talking about how neat it was that we had our first black Supreme Court Justice appointed in Thurgood Marshall, he was one of those seven that came to this decision nearly 50 years ago based off of a complete reinterpretation of a line from an amendment that has absolutely nothing to do with anything related to abortion. So, while people on both sides of the aisle are patting themselves on the back for posting images of Thurgood Marshall, um, he, wasn't, he wasn't a wise choice. And it has nothing to do with his color. But don't praise him as having done something victorious by being the first black Supreme Court Justice because his track record from the early days on are not good. Now, there are people that want to praise people like Ginsburg and all that as well, okay? And there are people that, that praise, you know, Antonin uh, Scalia and others, and some of them had more of a conservative stance most of the time than others, uh, but they've all wavered back and forth on all kinds of things. And... and Honestly, the Constitution allows for that because if you are a Supreme Court justice, you should not represent a particular party. You just shouldn't. You shouldn't be Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Independent or whatever. You shouldn't be any of those. When you're in that position and you're in it for the rest of your life unless you decide to retire, you should be there purely looking as, at the Constitution as your political party. That should be your... That should be it. That's what your stance should be. You should have a C besides your name for constitutionalist. If you're going to be a Supreme Court justice, you're not a Republican, not a Democrat, you're not any of the others. You are purely a constitutionalist. You are there to interpret the Constitution. You're not there to write laws. You are not there to write laws. 
But the concept of discovery used by the Supreme Court is doing just that. It is writing laws. It's creating laws. And you say, well, no, you're going to say that, that, that Roe versus Wade is, is that? Well, it's not in and of itself the only thing. Let me give you some other examples. Um, it is the most powerful body out there. I mean, it is. It stands there as as the entity that overrules everything else. Okay. Now, there was, there was a former Chief Justice, Charles Evans Hughes, who said, we are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judge says it is. Okay. And that's where we stand at this point. No person or group or government agency has any authority over the Supreme Court. It can simply invent new provisions that it claims are now part of the Constitution, such as the right to an abortion. And no one but the court itself can call into question or overrule or change its decisions. And let me give you another example of how threatening that really is. This new power, and again I'm quoting uh, Wayne Grudem here again, this new power of the Supreme Court has not merely affected the question of whether a woman has a right to get an abortion. It has affected hundreds of other issues, which is why the decisions announced by the Supreme Court are so important in the direction of the nation. The Roe v. Wade decision was one of the most blatant exercises of raw judicial power, but it was just one example of a policy that has been followed by the courts and Supreme Courts in many other areas. And here's the other next example, and this one took place two years earlier, okay? Now, again, I'm quoting Wayne Grudem. The First Amendment was never intended to remove the people's right to religious speech or writing in public places, at government functions, or even on government buildings. But in 1971, in the decision Lemon v. Kurtzman, the Supreme Court decided that a government action, quote, must not have the primary effect of either advancing or inhibiting religion, unquote. This meant that government could now do nothing that would give support to religious viewpoints or religious beliefs in general. Now, again, here's an example of them stretching beyond what the text says. I mean, far beyond what the text says. It says that you cannot establish things, right? You can't establish a particular denomination, a particular religion, a particular faith as the state faith. But they took it, in 1971, that Supreme Court took it to mean that all religious viewpoints must be removed from government use, which is ironic considering you've got liberals who stand up at podiums in front of the Capitol building spouting off scripture. They claim that they know and understand what it means and make allegiances to things. It's amazing. They do that, and then they turn right back around, and if you use it in your, behind your pulpit or in your neighborhood or on in your classroom, or at your office, or on social media, that you are somehow violating things. But again, quoting, this meant that government could now do nothing that would give support to religious viewpoints or religious beliefs in general. Far from prohibiting the favoring of one particular religion, the Supreme Court decided that government could no longer favor religion at all. And in this and similar decisions, the Supreme Court has thus excluded religious speech from more and more areas of life, whether public monuments, display of the Ten Commandments, prayer at school events, or even a moment of silence for students in public schools. 
No matter what one thinks about these individual issues, the important point is the process by which they were decided. None of these restrictions had first been passed by a state or local representative who was accountable to the people whom they serve. These are decisions that were made by the Supreme Court by these seven figures who were not elected by us, and they were decisions made on issues that never were agreed upon, never found victory in any other court system. They failed in all other means, got pushed up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided, yep, we'll, we'll accept it. Now, there are people that scream and shout about the importance of the Supreme Court for that very reason. It's like, well, you know, if we keep getting shot down, eventually we just push it up to the Supreme Court, and maybe they'll, they'll agree to it. Well, listen to what you're saying about that. I mean, seriously, take that in in, in a really serious consideration and think about what you're saying. You're saying that if I'm found wrong in every legal body, I just keep pushing it up until I find five people that are not elected by the American people who are willing to accept my issue and agree with me, then justice has been done. Now, I'm all opposed to a bad legal system on a local level, let alone a federal. Okay, I'm all opposed to crooked courts and crooked judges and all this. That's a morality issue in and of itself. But if what you are fighting for continues to be shot down in every court you deal with to the point you have to raise it all the way up to the Supreme Court so that five out of nine people can agree with you, there's a problem. There's a, either a problem in the way you've presented your information or there's a problem in the ethics of what you're presenting. And, and I do believe that. The odds are against every single court you go to leading up to the Supreme Court, every single one of them are crooked. Every single one of them have a crooked judge or a crooked system or whatever. Everyone. When we push things all the way up to the Supreme Court, it means that the system itself has rejected that statement up until that point. And we're hoping now that five people that are not elected by anybody who serve for life are going to come to that decision when the whole rest of the 350, 360 million people in the United States couldn't come to that conclusion. We're hoping that five people will and that somehow that's going to be justice. I'm sorry, that's not very uh, democratic. It's not much of a republic that you're referring to when you're, you're looking at it that way. And we are definitely lost as a nation if you are hoping that five people will make or break the success of this nation. But that's where we are. It's exactly where. That's why Congress is so freaked out by so many things. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other kicker that's interesting about this is that Congress is complicit in this. Congress knows that they will never get past the things they want to pass through the system. They know that the American people will not vote for these things. And so they override that system and they put it through the appeals courts and the circuit courts and the Supreme Court so that those individuals can pass these things because they don't know they know that they will not have the votes from the American people to make it happen now I had somebody 
couple of days ago that sent me a message, and, and again, I've said this before, I, I get more kickback from the Christian community than I do than I ever did from shills during the whole Q movement days. Um, it sickens me to see how many so-called Christians are just so absolutely stupid and lost. Um, but I got a comment a couple of days ago where people were talking about, well, every single official that we have out there is put there by God. And then it's just, it's a judgment on us, okay? No. There are scriptural references in the Old Testament, particularly, referring to people putting into place in order for the Hebrew people to be called into action. It's very specific. It does not say all leadership across the board is appointed by God. It just says that you, as a people, get what you deserve in the leadership that you have. It doesn't mean that God puts that individual in place, okay? I mean, he's not moving those pieces in that specific, okay? And I know there's a huge debate that can be had about that, but if you really believe that he's moving all those pieces to that matter, then you have absolutely no free will whatsoever. None. Absolutely none. So no, not every person that's appointed into every position of power is appointed by God. God expects us to appoint people worthy of those positions. And when we do not, we pay those consequences. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. Now, again, I'm not going to focus in on that one too much because that, that, that's a whole other ramification that I'm sure I'm going to get comments on that one primarily from the Christian community. Although they won't have things to really truly back it up. They'll, they'll quote a couple of scriptures for me and they'll claim that in and of itself proves their point. So every single leader that we've ever had in the world has always been guided and directed at the hand of God. Everyone. And you're going to believe that. You're going to buy that. Even though the references are referring to the Hebrew people, particularly in the way that they walked away from God and the punishments that they faced. But somehow that's going to affect everybody Christian community, non Christian community, everything. All of us. We're all in the same bed. Automatically. If that's the case, why do you even bother to vote? I mean, seriously, why do you vote? Why do you listen to this podcast? If it's already predetermined, as everybody's already put into place, why are you even bothering? Why don't you just curl up on a corner somewhere and just give up? That's not how God decides it. There's a reason why there were disciples. The disciples were there so they could lead people to the Lord. Which means he's not guiding and directing every moment that happens with every person in all moments. He wouldn't have had John the Baptist beheaded because of him dealing with the local leadership of that day and telling the truth about their incestuous relationships and the corruption within their leadership. But we're supposed to believe, according to people who quoted a couple of days ago, and I've been getting this for the last couple of years, this kind of stuff, the last couple of years, again, mostly from people who think that they mean well and they think that they're putting their feet to the fire, but they're screaming and shouting venom at the wrong person. I don't know how it's helping them to believe that uh, you know everything that happens to us all around us at all moments and all levels of leadership is there because it's it's all we deserve and we're just being punished. Okay, so that that makes God 
a vindictive God who puts people in place in every place of leadership and just beats down on us. That's not a loving God. That's not even a righteous God. That's an evil God. So, anyway, enough of that. I move on from that. These are examples I gave you from 1971 and 1973. So you're going, well, but you know, the courts have changed since then. We've got new people in place. We've had a lot of different people that have come and gone during that time period. Absolutely we have. So let's do something a little bit more recent. Let's look at 2005. We're going to look at the case of Kilo versus the city of New London. Okay? And again, I'm going to quote from Wayne Grudem. In 2005, the Supreme Court decided by a 5-4 to four majority that the city of New London, Connecticut could use the power of eminent domain to transfer private land to another private owner and that it could be considered public use under the Fifth Amendment. Okay, now, a little history lesson here. Eminent domain is a Fifth Amendment item and it's a legal principle which claims that the government can take private land without the owner's consent if they are uh, paid, you know, and uh, compensated a fair compensation for it, but they can take it and do that for public use. Okay, just public use. And that usually implies things like highways being built, um, things in that airports, areas of that, okay, common use, public use kinds of areas. However, in 2005, this Keto versus the city of New London was claiming that the that private landowners' property could be removed without their will, could be removed from them and given to other private owners, and that it would be interpreted as public use. Okay? Now, the Fifth Amendment very clearly says this, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Public use. But again, the distinction between private property and public use up until that point had been understood to mean that the government would take the private property with care compensa fair compensation to the owner for the purpose of building roads, railroads, public utilities, things that the public in general would use. However, in the Kilo case, the city claimed the right to take a private home, that of Suzette Kilo, so that it could be used for an urban redevelopment plan that was being carried out by a private developer, not the government making the land financially more profitable. So they were taking away private land from a person and giving it to a private company so the company could profit off of better rent on that property. That's not public use. That's still private use. It's private gain. It's a private developer. The case goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court agrees with it. And those among the... the, the the, the people who were a part of that system included the relatively newly appointed Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Now, that wasn't the first of these. This is, it gets even worse, okay? As a sad follow-up on that case, four years after the decision, so in 2009, the Wall Street Journal reported that, quote, the wrecked and condemned neighborhood still stands vacant without any of the touted tax benefits or job creation. So four years later, after this had been done, the land still hadn't been used for its original intention. 
but the private developer was continuing to profit off of the land. Oh, and who was that developer? Who owned the land at this point? The pharmaceutical giant Pfizer. And they decided to just abandon the facility and walk away from it. So Suzette Kilo loses her property. Pfizer makes money off the deal. And no person got benefited from a redevelopment facility. And that's all thanks to a Supreme Court decision. In 2000, five years before the case for Kilo versus the city of New London, in 2000, decision against the Boy Scouts of America versus Dale. And, and you may remember this one. I certainly remember it. Uh, and it was a case where <clears throat> an individual had indicated that they, uh, they had publicly come out as being homosexual. They were uh, a member of the uh, Lesbian and Gay Student Alliance. They were actually the president okay, of that. He had been a, a, He published an interview in which he stated that he was a homosexual. And then when the officials of the Boy Scouts read the interview, he was dismissed from his position because it, it was counter to their principles and their policies. He had been a scoutmaster. They removed him from that position because it was in opposition to what they stood for, the ethics in which they promoted Boy Scouts of America. And that ends up with a five-member majority of the Supreme Court overturning the New Jersey's Supreme Court decision, which had included Ginsburg, by the way, um, Because it's like, hold on a second, this entity has a right, they have a right to hire and fire who they will. And they have a right to maintain the principles by which they desire to stand for. And if an individual is doing something for them that is not holding that standard, they have a right to release them from their position. But it became painfully close, even with the Supreme Court in there. It was a one-person decision that it could be that any business could no longer fire anybody for anything. It's amazing. Now, I'm going to leave on this note because this is tagged in with that particular topic. And I, I wasn't originally going to cover this. wasn't going to deal with it. And I'm still trying to avoid the name of the actual company itself because I really don't mean... <sighs> I really don't want to get too uh, wrapped up in the details of this, and I'm not trying to make a political battle out of anything, and I'm not, certainly not trying to boycott anything. But I'm going to use this as an example of, just like Boy Scouts of America had a right to stand up for what their principles were and who they could hire or fire uh, in reference to whether those people held up those principles or not. I'm going to throw a story out there that's very personal for me. Just here recently, and I, I've you know I've been an educator for 14 years, and uh, thanks to COVID, they sent us home, you know, last year, last school year, and uh, I ended up not getting my contract renewed last year, and I've been in the process of trying to get back into a school district ever since. And quite honestly, with the the climate that has changed, not only between COVID, but with the change of administration into the Biden administration, and the liberalism and the so-called political correctness and all the things that have happened in the last year or so. It is painfully difficult to get a teaching position, even in conservative areas of Texas. It's very difficult to get a teaching position 
as a middle-aged white conservative Christian and a male. <laughs> Throwing that on there and the guy. Okay, it's very hard to get get those positions nowadays. And uh, every single one of the schools that I've looked at, every one of the systems that I've looked at, they've all come back with the same. Well, we're looking in another direction. Okay, now what that really means is they're looking for somebody that isn't old white male conservative and Christian. That's really what they're looking for. They're looking for somebody that wants to do the critical race theory, or they they're looking for somebody that is you know part of Antifa, like the California guy. Okay, they're looking for people like that that can change and mold and redevelop the system, not people who want kids to think on their own. They don't want those kind of teachers in the classrooms anymore. And I find myself up against the interview boards where it's not the administration really that gives me the flack, it's the other teachers I would be teaching with that are giving me the flack at this point, who are, well, what would you do in a diverse classroom, you know, and what would you do with this and that? And uh, it's like, no, I, I don't know, I would probably teach them the same way I would teach anybody. It's what I've done for the last 14 years. I teach every student the same content based off of them being human beings. I don't do it based off of, gee, I wonder what their background is and whether, whether they can actually learn this or not. I teach them all equally because they're all U.S. citizens. They're all human beings. They're all high school kids. That's it. That's what I teach based off of. It has nothing to do with race or gender or assumed gender or any of that kind of thing. And when I when I make those kind of statements in an interview, um, I end up with that phone call that says, hey, you know, we're looking in another direction. They don't want that. They don't want somebody that wants kids to think freely or, or is colorblind to the students in their classroom. They don't want that. Apparently, they want principals separating the kids by their races they want teachers that are putting up Antifa flags and taking down the United States flags who are promoting cross-gender rather than two genders who, um, when they have a conversation with a student, wants to take in the total, total multiple-century history of the peoples they may have come from into consideration when I try to talk to them about Shakespeare. That's what they want. So, and I chase that rabbit. I, that's what I've been trying to do in the last year is try to get back into the school system. And, and quite honestly, I think I'm going to have to move up the tier and move out of that. And I'm, I'm seriously looking into continuing on my education into the, the doctorate level and uh, get out and above this and maybe try to do some real change, affect some real change somewhere else on a higher level. But in the meantime, you apply for positions. You try to get things to do things. And there, recently there was a, there was a new... Uh, coffee shop that opened up in my neighborhood and I was so excited to see this coffee shop come in because it was an alternative to Starbucks and it, 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 they seemed to hold all the conservative values and the second amendment rights and the, all of this kind of stuff and I was like this is exciting I mean, and on top of everything else it was good coffee and uh, and I, I thought you know what if I don't have a teaching position by, by August you know what I'm going to go ahead and apply on here and I'm going to I can at least be doing this for a while and, and I did that very thing got interviewed good interview and um, I ended up getting the position but I am not working there. And here's why. In the process of being accepted, I started getting a series of emails, you know, as you go through those stages and everything. And I noticed that in the emails, the people that were representing the HR department were putting their personal pronouns, their preferred pronouns, into their, their signature areas and things of that nature. 
And I thought, okay, that seems a little odd for conservative company. Why are they doing that? So I went in into the linked account, the LinkedIn accounts to the to the different figures, and they're promoting things of that same nature. Or they're supporting people that I clearly know are not truly conservative, uh, not even remotely close to them. They're supporting people like Paul Ryan, or they're you know endorsing people like uh, uh, Melinda Gates. And I'm like, oh, hold on a second. I'm, these are some red flags that are coming up. This doesn't seem to make sense. And these are the people that are in the hiring portion of this and the admin portion of this company that claims to be so conservative and second amendment and all that kind of thing and I'm like oh this isn't this isn't good i'm not really crazy about that and then i get further into the paperwork and i'm like you know what lord just lead me through this guide me through all this and i get into the final stages of the paperwork and i'm trying to do the final things before i submit it in there and i get through that process and it gets to the portion where i have gender and it has three options not male female choose not to, you know, decline to say, you know, which is what the old school one was because it's like, you know what, it really shouldn't matter, right? Well, no, the third option isn't even that. The third option is non-binary. And I froze at that point and I'm like, hold on a second. Okay, now I, I can understand individuals within the company that have their own personal freedoms and they have their own personal things and they can still be conservative and say, you know what, I'm going to be middle of the road and I'm going to put my preferred pronouns on there, you know, whatever. And none of them were, were odd preferred pronouns. They were all standard things, okay, so it wasn't like it was crazy. So I, I was willing to, to overlook all of that and then I get to the application, which is clearly a document that is endorsed by and created by the company and they have that third option on there of non-binary. And I have to admit, I froze at that point. I'm like, no, 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 hold on. There's This isn't adding up. You're either really conservative, really constitutional, and really rational in the way that you see things, or you're playing the politically correct game. It's not just individuals in the company that represent these other values. The company itself is, is, is giving in to these other values as well. Nothing in me had a sense of peace about continuing on with the process. Just didn't. Didn't have a didn't have a peace with it. And it wasn't just that. I mean, it was leading up into that. But I mean, it that was finally the final straw. So I withdrew, and I let them know in writing why I was withdrawing. That it, I understood the company represented the values that I represented, and I was disappointed to see a pattern of things that showed that no, they were leaning, they were giving into the politically correct status rather than standing up for the things they claim they stand up for in all of their promotions and all of their their marketing. And so what they were doing behind the scenes wasn't adding up with what they were telling people on the front. And I didn't like for that. I didn't care for that. And I didn't want anybody to look at me and say, hey, why is he working for this company that seems to do this or this or this? Why is he willingly doing that? And so I told them all that, and they just said they respected my decision, and they accepted my you know, declining of the position, and we moved on. Now, I haven't decided yet whether I'm going to still be a customer of theirs or not, because they really do make really good coffee. And I can drink the coffee and not have to deal with the politics. It's okay. It's just coffee. But I couldn't represent them with a clear conscience. See the difference? You can buy the food, buy the product, but you don't have to work for them. You don't have to promote them in that way. 
And that's that's not being disingenuous. I mean, if somebody asked me why you're drinking black rifle coffee, I could turn around and say, well, why do you drink Starbucks? Do you do you believe in all the ethics behind Starbucks? I bet you don't, but you're still drinking their product. Why? Do you believe in everything that Dunkin' Donuts stands for? You drink their coffee. Or McDonald's. You drink their coffee. Or, you know, you just go on and on. I mean, if we're talking about just coffee companies, find me a coffee company that apparently is really going to stand up for the values that they claim they stand up for. But we are there. We're at this point, folks, where what you think is being represented in your best interest is really kind of a farce. But where do you draw that line? Do you with maintain your character or do you bend your character and try to convince yourself and your friends and neighbors around you of something different? You've got to make that decision. And I made it. And that's where I got. And that's where I got to. And <laughs> I still don't have... You know, I'm not currently, you know, employed. And uh, and that's okay. And I say that's okay because there's a reason for all of it. I've got, you've got, we've got to draw the line. And it's got to be more than just a line drawn in the sand. It's got to be something that cannot be moved. It's got to be etched down into the stone. And you got to, you got to stand your ground on it. And if you're not willing to do it now, you're surely not going to be willing to do it when the times get really, really bad. And if you haven't noticed, it has accelerated very rapidly just in the last few months, let alone the last few years. And just like what I said in my last broadcast, seven years is more than enough time to destroy everything that you know in this world. Seven years will go by like that. And where are you going to be standing in during that time? Where are you going to be? If you can't stand up on your, on your decision of who you're going to work for or what coffee you're going to drink or who you're going to spend time with, if you can't make decisions on things, those things today, you're certainly not going to be able to stand there and make a decision on am I going to be beheaded or am I, you know, for standing up for the, my belief and, and uh, worship of the Lord Jesus Christ or am I going to cave in and take the mark, whatever the mark ends up being. If you're at the point right now where you're willing to just give in and take the vaccines, do the boosters, uh, forget the science on all these different things, if you're willing to do all that, or, hey, you know what, I, I understand that they're teaching some strange things in the classroom, but you know what, there's nothing I can do about it. All I can do is just raise my kid the best that I know to do it from home and, uh, and, and hope that it's enough to keep them from, from being motivated by the things that go on during the eight hours of the day that they are in, indoctrinated through a school system. Uh, not just by the teachers and the staff and the writings and the books and the workshops and the videos, uh, but also by the fellow students around them that are all being indoctrinated into all the same thing as well. But uh, but you know what? The couple of hours I get to see them in the evening is going to be perfectly fine for me to be able to balance all of that out. I don't need to fight any of the battles in a school board meeting or uh, become part of the solution in the NS system. It'll all get worked out. Or even be more naive and just say, well, you know, the Lord has a plan and this is... This is where it is, and uh, we're just going to have to sit back and just do. Because, see, I do believe that we are part of the Lord's plan. See, the Lord could have 
done things with Nineveh without Jonah, but he wanted to include Jonah in the process. He could have liberated the Hebrew people from Egypt without Moses, but he chose to use Moses instead. He could have converted the world to a belief in his son Jesus Christ without the disciples, but he still used them. There's a lot of things that could have been done without human interaction, but God puts us in the middle of it so that we can be a part of the plan and be a part of the process. And for us to stand back and claim that there's nothing we can do about it or all the leadership is given to us by God and therefore we're just kind of getting our just desserts, here, let me bend over so you can spank me, because that's really what I, I feel about it. I mean, it's ridiculous, it's lunacy, and we, we have a long biblical history of people being put into positions to get in the face of the leadership, to advise them, to reprimand them, to teach them, to pray for them. It's all there, and we are supposed to do those things. And as much as I don't care for the ineptitude of the current president in the White House, and as much as I didn't care for the raw, unadulterated responses that we got from the previous one at times, he went overboard, and I, I acknowledge that. I still pray for both of them. I pray for, for President Trump when he was in office. I pray for him still today. And I pray for the current administration. And I don't pray that the, what they're putting into place will work. I pray that there will be changes of heart. There will be changes of structure. There will be an awakening in some way in their soul to understanding of where things are. The problem is, is that the president and vice president are not the ones calling the real shots. President Trump wasn't either. Okay? He was he was out there and vocal and he was leading people to, to try and do their part in the process. But he wasn't calling the shots either. If he was, he would still be in there. He wouldn't have had the opposition he had in DC if he had been calling the shots. Okay? But the names and faces change. Just like the names and faces of the Supreme Court Justice have changed since 1971 and 73 when those two ugly cases that I've indicated took place. They've changed a lot during that time frame. But the corruption is still there. The immoral decisions are still there. And the intoxicating level of power that they, can, they, they, they wield and that they inappropriately use a great deal of the time is all there. I mean, we still have to understand that John Roberts is still the lead chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he is still the one who appointed every single one of the FISA judges that went through this whole rigmarole for the last five or six years with Trump and Russia and the Clintons and everything else. He appointed all those people. And all those people began to write out things and have U.S. citizens surveyed for all kinds of things. And yet he's supposed to be a conservative leader, okay? Or have a conservative mindset. He doesn't. So this corruption on both sides of the aisle, because there are sides of the aisle in the Supreme Court, and there shouldn't be. If all nine of those people were truly following the Constitution, we would never have reached the decisions that were made in 1971 or 1973 with Roe v. Wade or in 2000 or in 2005 with the figures and the things that we've brought up today. 
None of those decisions would have been reached based off of that because they were reaching far beyond what the Constitution actually said, and they were creating, they were discovering their own form of power. Supreme Court is out of control, and it doesn't matter who you put into that position, those nine people should not be in power over what gets governed in the land. It should be working on a lower level than that. It should be working in our local court systems. It should be working within our cities. It should be working within our school districts. It should be working within our local homes and schools and churches. But it's not. So you can complain about D.C. all you want to, but the problems are happening on your local level. And where you can influence them on the local level but if you're going to sit back and just say, well, it's just is what it is and we're getting the punishment that we deserve and therefore we're just going to sit back and do nothing about it, then uh, you're, not going to, you're not going to make it. You're just not. You're not going to make it. Which is, again, one of the reasons why I believe that we're going to have a very, very small group of people that are really considered the church when the end actually hits. Very small group of people. And those people are going to be the few. They're going to be knocking heads and they're going to be getting in your face if you're not a part of them, they're going to be getting in your face too and telling you the truth according to God's word. And you're either going to look at them and think they are the fool, or you're going to look at them and you're going to realize that you need to be on your knees to the Lord. But you're not going to be looking for some figure to show up on social media or on TV and say they're going to save you, because that's not going to happen. Nobody's coming to save you. No human being, at least, is coming to save you. And the Supreme Court, I'm using that today as an example because, again, here we are September 1st. We've got the Texas decision that's happened. The Supreme Court, thankfully, stayed out of the matter, and so therefore the state could do what they needed to do uh, rather than it being overridden because, quite honestly, this supposedly predominantly conservative Supreme Court has made some very liberal decisions. And uh, so I would not, I'm very thankful that we didn't have to rely on them to come to that decision. And we shouldn't have to anyway. It's a local law. Supreme Court shouldn't even be involved in it. The elected people should have the say in this matter, not the unelected. But here we are, September 1st, and here's the first thing, and I, I, you know, I always make the comment, I'm going to do this brief, and this isn't going to be very long, and then here I am, and it ends up being long anyway. But there's my thing. There's what I've covered. Hopefully this has made some sense. I'm sure I'm going to get some negative feedback from people, because I always do in everything that I post. And, uh, and there it is. And I just hope that the majority of it aren't people that are fellow Christians, although I know that they will be. I love you. Um, but I will also indicate at this point I need love in the form of a financial support from y'all as well. I already mentioned in this broadcast that you know the battle I'm having trying to get back into the education field. Um, you'll notice that I've got the, the Buy Me a Coffee uh, banner that it's there for those of you that are watching this on Rumble. If you're just listening to me on the podcast, buymeacoffee.com slash Press, and the first is spelled out the number one, S-T, and then Century Press, and go out there, please. Contribute a dollar. Uh, if you're really going to be helpful, do some level of a, of a monthly contribution. I mean, there's, there's nothing that's above $15 a month. Nothing. Uh, but, I mean, $5 a month commitment, if you could do that. Again, 
one cup of coffee at even the most conservative or liberal um, place. But if you, one cup of coffee, buy me that coffee once a month. And uh, I guarantee you it goes a long way and it will be used to help continue on with this and to continue to search for a way to combat the uh, the direction everything is going in. I know the direction is there and it's set in so many ways, but again, we are individual players taking part in all this. And so in order to do that, we have to be able to have the resources. In order to be able to have the resources, it does require some money. So I do ask that. Uh, please contribute, whether it's one time or on a recurring time at whatever level as we go forward with this. And really one of the best ways that you can you can help me actually is to spread the word about First Century Press. Send people to podcast.firstcenturypress.com for the audio broadcast. Send them to rumble.com slash firstcenturypress in order to watch these videos. Uh, send them to at firstcenturypress for Instagram because there'll be content that's there. And it's also the same address for my Twitter account, although I have very, very few people out there because I don't go on Twitter very often. And uh, regardless of, of how you go and, and why you're doing it, just please spread the word to other people to have them at least listen. Even if you don't agree with me and you want other people to, to hear the, the craziness that I have out there, then pass the word to them too. That's fine. An audience is an audience. And uh, every little bit can help. So I thank you. God bless you. And uh, until next time, go with God. <laughs>